History and novels are usually thought of as different. They're on separate shelves at the library or the bookstore. We might like to think that one comes from facts, whereas the other comes from the imagination. Yet in today's episode, we examine the sometimes blurry boundaries between these approaches to understanding the world through a conversation between Ottoman historian Nuket Varlik and the novelist Orhan Pamuk. The topic of their conversation? Plague. The horrific disease associated with the Black Death. This is the Ottoman History Podcast, and I'm Sam Dolby. Stay with us. Dr. Nuket Varlik is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University and has written the award-winning Plague and Empire in the early modern Mediterranean world. Her research reveals the changing cultural meanings and political effects of plague in the early modern Ottoman Empire. And in addition to using the textual sources we typically associate with history, Varlik also integrates the developing genetic research on the illness. Orhan Pamuk is a Nobel Prize-winning novelist whose works are many. A partial list includes My Name is Red, The White Castle, and A Strangeness in My Mind. He is currently working on a historical novel dealing with the plague. For both Varlik and Pamuk, plague brings up existential questions. So we might tend to think of plague as a disease of the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. as an extinct old disease. It's not. It is still well and alive. It's still with us. I'm interested about people who are dying Mm -hmm. and what the concept of death, darkness, and all that beauty and terror and the power of that terror to make you read and understand things is, yeah, I'm interested. They also both face the challenge of finding sources on the topic of plague that shed light on the lived experience of the disease. No one, oh, I have plague, I'm going to die in two days, why don't I keep a diary? (laughs) No one did it. A multiplicity of sources can be combined together to reconstruct, to recreate big picture questions, but also having just glimpses of individual uh, personal experience. Given the sometimes limited nature of sources, both said imagination is necessary. I am trying to imagine what's missing, and or, you may say, there's nothing missing, Orhan. We, of course, know that imagination is very important, and it is important to integrate creative approaches to our work, but we're also limited by the conventions of our discipline, our field. But as they noted, imagination carries with it the danger of anachronism. The hard thing about writing a historical novel is that we may project our problems of today to the past. And in this conversation about plague and the past, there are clear connections to debates in the present, debates about what constitutes historical evidence and what interpretations we make from that evidence. I am not a fatalistic Turk, but these are the facts. You know, you want to see, of course, oh, there is quarantine in Europe. So this means they were more progressive, you know, more had scientific understanding. And you don't have the same quarantine measures in the Ottoman Empire. It means there is no effective public health measure. I reject this, um, this argument. 
Varlik and Pamuk spoke in November of 2018 at Columbia University as part of a free public event called Imagining and Narrating Plague in the Ottoman World. The recording begins with Tun Shen, an assistant professor of history at Columbia, who moderated the event. So this is a very unusual kind of panel, uh, but I would like to really uh, bring together two different perspectives, the perspective of a historian and perspective of a novelist. I'm sure you're using the word unusual as a positive. Uh, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let me first ask Nuket, for those of you in the audience who are not very familiar with your scholarship, could you tell us a little bit about the contents of this work or the contents of the upcoming one? Why you uh, really dealt with the history of plague in the first place? Before answering your question, let me also say how uh, it is my pleasure uh, to be in a, this unusual event tonight mm. and hopefully to create an interesting conversation between uh, the historical imagination of a historian and a novelist. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, my work on the history of plague epidemics in the Ottoman Empire, in my work, in my first book, I um, studied the history of plague epidemics starting from the beginning of what we call the second pandemic in the middle of the 14th century, the Black Death that we all have heard about, starting uh, in uh, somewhere in Central Asia and then spreading to Western Eurasia and um, affecting the majority uh, of the Afro-Eurasian world in the middle of the 14th century. And then this epidemic, of course, continued in uh, repeated outbursts throughout the course of the early modern period. In my first book, I covered a study of um, plague outbreaks from 1347 to 1600 in the Ottoman Empire and the wider Mediterranean world. And I tried to establish the historical interplay between a disease agent of plague and the Ottoman Empire. They tried to establish the historical connections between the ex expansion of the Ottoman Empire and the expansion of plague and tried to understand the um, interactions between the two. And this first book, of course, continues to uh, inform my scholarship mainly in two different directions. On the one hand, I am studying the texts that will help us understand the individual human experiences about the disease, and I am involved in uh, studying um, translations and editions of these works, but at the same time, I'm also involved in multidisciplinary research projects, uh, especially collaborating with scientists, geneticists, climate scientists, ecologists, and whatnot, to understand the history of plague in the Ottoman Empire. So after doing this work, or while doing this work, I started to understand the history of plague epidemics during the course of the, the larger framework of the second pandemic and what the Ottoman experience can teach us in on a global scale. And so this informs my second book project, mm -hmm. looking at the basically 500 years of plague experience in the Ottoman Empire, starting from 1340s, the beginning of the second pandemic, the Black Death, and continuing all the way to the middle of the 19th century. In fact, studying the Ottoman experience gives us a unique perspective to understand the history of plague in world history, because the Ottoman experience is the only 
historical record mm. that will give us a 500 years of uh, play continued history in in his, this is this is a unique one on on historical record so that's why um, it's important to study and understand it but at the same time when we think about the current um, situation that we're in the world mm. uh, the times that we're in we are going through a very interesting unusual time of, of climate change and we are facing these unusual uh, weather events and hurricanes and wildfires and earthquakes and what now so ecologically a very unstable times in particular it is it is important to to think about the history of disease past and current emergent and re-emerging diseases in such ecologically uh, mutable and unstable times so it's all the more important to study plague in the current context and uh, so this will give us an opportunity to to study a past disease in the modern context and in that sense plague is again a model uh, model infection so we might tend to think of plague as a disease of the middle ages mm-hmm. as an extinct old disease it's not it is still well and alive. It's still with us. Last year, there was an outbreak in Madagascar, which resulted in the death of at least 200 people. And we have continuous, smaller, but continuous outbreaks taking place in Western and Southwestern US and in other parts of the world, in different uh, enzootic pockets of, mm-hmm. of Central Asia, Southern Africa, South America. So plague is still with us. Mm-hmm. And in that context, I think it's important to think of plague and its history as a continuous journey and finding ways of how we can study this disease historically but also with the assistance of science and in fact now we have this additional advantage of studying plague with the help of genetics it is now possible to extract pieces of human DNA from the bones and skeletons and from human teeth and dental pulp and study the genomes that cause the disease uh, during specific outbreaks. For all of these reasons, plague is not only interesting, Mm -hmm. but also very relevant to our modern times. As to the resilience of the disease, and I mean, you rightfully pointed out that uh, plague was not just a medieval disease. It was, it had repercussions in even today's world. And at that point, maybe I should just turn to Orhan Pamuk because his novel will be set at the turn of the 20th century. So you know about my novel. I know. I probably <laughs> told you something. I heard something about you regarding <laughs> this novel, but I'm uh, pretty sure uh, that our uh, audience okay. will be really happy now, if you uh, can say a little bit about that your, you your upcoming uh, novel, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, what the title is. Uh, okay, yeah, okay, I'll also tell the title. And how long have you been <laughs> working on yes. it? Uh, I've been working on a novel about plague that uses plague and in fact I've been thinking about this novel for almost 30 years that is about Ottoman plague though slightly different. Uh, um, Nuket Warlick pointed out that she is busy with plague partly because it, it is still around us it may hurt humanity more and I've been reading a lot of books about plague uh, for the last 30 months that most, uh, a lot of books legitimize themselves by saying plague may come back again or contagious diseases are uh, the climate is changing contagious diseases may have a strong impact in our lives in future so be 
Ever, Beware. Daniel Defoe, the writer of the Robinson Crusoe, wrote a book called The Journal of the Plague Year. And his problematics of writing that book is, he published that book in mid-18th century and wrote about London Plague, Great London Plague of 1655, uh, because there was plague in southern Europe, and he was warning to his readers, would-be readers, that it may come again. But my reason, my interest in plague is not that of warning, but enjoying in fact my in my interest in plague is literary that i want to surround myself with the imagery of the plague first that is when a novelist and i'm a slow moving patient novelist writes a novel about a subject first he is saying to himself to his family to his friends I am going to immerse myself in this imagery. Say, if I write a book like My Name is Red, then for four years, five years, I am immersing myself with this imagery. If I'm writing this book, first of all, it's a very popular question to ask a writer, why do you write this novel? Why do you write mm -hmm. this? Or why do you write? And people, I didn't want to ask that question. Yes, to uh, you. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and writers are upset about by, uh, that you didn't ask, but, <laughs> and, and because it's an unusual thing to write. There is not one single reason to write. There are so many reasons. You write, 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 and you publish a book, then you do interviews, then the journalist asks, why did you write this novel? Or why did you write this book? But it's a quick way of triggering, um, making the guy talk about why he wrote it. So I'm gonna do that talk now. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, um, we write books. And the reason we write them, we understand after we finish the book, because the greatest thinking we have is during the process of writing the book, I think about the book more deeply in depth as I write the book. The best interesting information, the book, if you can call it information, human knowledge, whatever you call it, scientific knowledge, human knowledge, literary knowledge, literary information, uh, or the substance of the book, the best parts, comes when, as you write the book. So the intuition of the writer is essential here, and I'm here talking only about my intuitions, that I thought about this book. I decided to write a, no a novel about Blake almost 30 years ago, and in, in this 30 years, there were, uh, I think, whoever I told, I'm thinking of writing a novel about, everyone said, oh, Albert Camus, his famous novel <laughs> about plague. There are one or two books that I also want to cover. That book is influential because it's very popular, its title is attractive, and there, plague is not a subject that is taken realistically, but more, it's a metaphor. If you, instead of, whenever you come across the word plague, instead of you put Nazis or uh, invasion of France by Nazis, and if you look at it as an absurd thing, then the novel works. Lots of things that people did during the German occupation, black markets, trying to run away, Gestapo coming to your house and picking you up compared to your, your home and they're picking up and taking to you to a hospital. Mm -hmm. These uh, are very similar. And also what after 30 years of reading that book, what is upsetting is more that the narrator, narrator tells us that the doors of the city of Oran was closed. And this novel takes place in 1930. In 1930, there was no town in the world where the doors are closed and uh, uh, and the plague stops. But in the end, I'm not. I should not be 
trashing or talking negatively about the book. It's a great book. It's a very popular book. It made the idea of plague central in a literary work, mm. but the plague there and the especially the quarantine there is out of a fairy tale because we don't see how the plague comes, how the government stops it or fights against it. These things happen in some other place and we are not, we don't get much information about the technical details of fight against plague while I'm more in, interested in that. But 30 years ago, yes, Camus novel taught me that plague can be used in a novel and, and Again, I think I was fascinated with that novel because of this fascination of, about death and dying. What makes plague so interesting and what makes it different than other deaths is that it's so strong, it's around, it's in your, in your neighbor, you feel that you cannot run away from it and you begin to think of death as a very strong thing, that it's not your own sickness, that it's everyone's sickness and everyone is dying. And it's such a, a it, when you feel it, its presence is so strong that it cannot be compared to anything else. And that in fact, that is what I am trying to discover, explore, express, describe and express in my book. How does it feel in an Ottoman place when you have plague. Why is this important? I'll kind of say a few things about other books that are more important for me. One is Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year. It has a, a subtitle which may help us to discuss more. A Journal of the Plague Year, which was published in 1772, being observation or memorials of the most remarkable occurrences and public as private, what happened in London? What happened? Uh, and in fact, he does what he says at the title. He gives us, Daniel Defoe, what a great man I sometimes think that, as we all know about Robinson Crusoe, he knows and he knows so much about human na nature. Even in places that he had not been to, he would write about the place and he has an innate information about human nature, nature that no one had. It's not a novel. In fact, there was a discussion whether Daniel Defoe's The Journal of the Plague Year was a novel or not, but it's based, he says, that it is actually based on a notebook he had found, but it is a sort of an encyclopedia of human reaction to plague. Here we see people going, going to magic, religion, people terribly afraid and escaping, People are thieves going into empty houses, people dying and no one noticing, people dying in an em empty house and your corpses smelling. Various formations of groups, thieves, closing of the houses, houses, you're not allowed to go out of your house, everyone is looking out of the window and streets are empty. What does the government do? Um, rich are running away before the poor. Bandits are going into empty houses. What happens in the churches? And of course, the religious subject of crime and punishment. We did this, we did that, and God gave us this reaction. And a very important thing is that plague triggers a lot of rumors, mm -hmm. gossip. Where did it come from? It's The question is always, where did it come from? Maybe you want to talk about where did it come from? Because my model that I feel close to is Alexandro Manzoni. Mm -hmm. He is Italy's Tolstoy. He wrote the great Italian epic, national epic, the Bitroff in 18. 
27 and he did what I am doing perhaps. His novel, The Betrothed, is not only exclusively a novel about plague, it's a national epic, a love story. It's a story of the betrothed, but it also covers, two chapters cover the plague in 1630, 20 years earlier than London plague, and we see there plague as a realist story. The government is doing things, lots of, lots of rumors. In fact, when we say plague, we also talk about, I think, two things, quarantina mm -hmm. and rumors. Of course, there is also the third subject, the subject of the private person. What does he think? But that is related to our concept of our death. And perhaps this is the hardest part. Mm -hmm. We want to talk about so, that yeah, too. Yeah, yes. And mm -hmm. speaking of the rumors, and especially speaking of the notebook, therefore uh, uh, apparently used mm -hmm. to uh, reconstruct his novel. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether you, during your research process for writing this novel, did you come across any such uh, notebook or a source like I, that? Um, I, what, what is, I mean, what is the status of the scholarship that you uh, have had the chance to examine? Specifically, the scholarship. In fact, of the it's not much different than as I when I wrote my name is red. There is little, little bit of information, very little information about the Ottoman, let's say, scribes and and calligraphers. One uh, Ottoman historian did a little bit of research. There's not much, and in the end, then the writer should look at the paintings and use his imagination. I think more or less uh, with the limited knowledge I had and also talking to my scholar friends and reading their books, I am trying to imagine what's missing and or you may say, there's nothing missing, Orhan. We're going to find it. Or gonna Maybe we should turn to Nuket <laughs> at that point, I mean, uh, because she delves into the primary sources uh, that might be related to writing the story and history of the play. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what the Ottoman uh, history provides in terms of the sources for writing the story of plague? Did you have any problems in terms of the relative absence or abundance uh, of sources? Mm -hmm. uh, for the time period that I was working on my first book, especially the 14th century and uh, somewhat this also applies to at least the first half of the 15th century we don't have elaborate personal um, testimonies like we have in the case of and of course that's an 18th century source but we don't have very detailed accounts of how things are happening. There are occasional references to anecdotes in sources here and there, and so we can put together the different pieces of the puzzle, like in the cases that you mentioned. So we do have accounts of rumors about where people talk about, well, where did plague come from? What happened to, how did people respond to it? Like the several gossip and other kind of dynamics here that we see in Ottoman cases also. We can trace those in the source and in terms of reaction and like stories of abandonment and how, in fact, in some cases, some individuals got buried. They were mur murdered 
but they were recorded as having died of plague. And we have instances of post-mortem opening of the grave to very... So we have similar accounts, but relatively speaking, it is very difficult to find individual experiences in these accounts, especially for the 14th century and somewhat for the 15th century. Starting in the late 15th century and into the 16th century, there is more. We have uh, the writings of physicians, for example. We have medical plague treatises. We have legal treatises. So we understand a little bit about what the medical of knowledge of the time was, how people try to deal with the disease. And we also have uh, sources, of course, coming from the, the state. Perspective of the state can be constructed on the basis of official documents of the Ottoman state from the archives. And also, in addition to this, we can recover some of the personal uh, individual experiences on the basis of court registers. So a multiplicity of sources can be combined together to reconstruct, to recreate big picture questions, but Mm -hmm. also having just glimpses of individual uh, personal experiences. In my own research, I found it very helpful to, especially when dealing with the earlier periods when there is absence of sources, I found it helpful to think of sources there where you will not think of finding plague, for example, Sufi hagiographies. You know, we wouldn't think of these sources as medical sources or something that would have direct implications on the plague. No, actually, you have several um, biographies of Sufi uh, masters that really actually talk a lot about natural disasters, earthquakes, and plague, and how they offered their um, uh, spiritual assistance to their community to relieve them from plague. In, in such accounts, so just trying to think creatively and trying to integrate different genres of sources together, trying to bring them together is, of course, I think, one possible Uh uh, way of dealing with this problem of absence of sources. Another strategy that I found useful is to bring in non-textual sources. The materiality of plague can be recovered by studying scientific cases. And in this, I'm mostly referring to genetics evidence that can be recovered from human and animal bones. So yes, it is true that we don't have very rich sources for the early period, but it somewhat can be compensated by mm-hmm. different means. And here, I think imagination is, is very important. So That was the thing I was going to ask okay. you, actually. Is there any room for imagination among historians? I mean, were or are historians uh, free to imagine uh, whenever they have absence in terms of the sources? Or how can the imagination be useful as a faculty? for a historian. Uh, I would like to f- hear first Nuket uh, about this, and then I will uh, turn to you, Mr. Pamuk. Well, here I believe you will agree with me as a historian of early modern Ottoman Empire. I mean, we of course know that imagination is very important and it is important to integrate creative approaches to our work, but we're also limited by the conventions of our discipline, our field. But at least at the level of recovering individual experiences, I think historical imagination plays a great role. So in that, I believe that like asking questions like, you know, what did people feel in the past when they were suffering from disease, when they were dying, and how did it feel to witness the death of their loved ones and their neighbors and friends, and what kind of a crisis did this mean for the society that experienced this, right? So all of these questions, I think there is room for imagination, but again, 
our problems mm -hmm. also. Mr. Pamuk, would you like to add? I, I understand. But before that, we also, haven't we discussed among us that we also should go to this concept of fatalism? When, whenever the subject of plague opens, then there is this um, given thought that Muslims are more fatalistic. That is the reason why Ottoman Empire had their first quarantine um, system in 1830s, while that it was Europe was had quarantine system and uh, lazarettos much much earlier. Why didn't Ottoman Empire? as a system, as a government, didn't have a quarantine system or institutions that will be ready to go in and during plague. And there's no answer to that. And the answer mostly is that these people maybe do not care much or these people are more, quote, fatalistic or do not care much about dying or whatever you say. Of course, these things are, you cannot prove them. And there is a huge material added up, a lot, a lot of it coming from travelers' accounts that the Muslims are fatalistic and slow in reacting to play. And I agree to that. I don't call that a, a prejudice. I don't call it an orientalist. Fatalistic Turk. Fat yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> I am not a fatalistic Turk, but these are the facts that... Uh, Should we accept uh, these yeah. as facts? Because No, you I'm not <laughs> saying this as a fact. But let me put it my situation uh -huh. because this is a very delicate thing mm -hmm. that, yes, lots of Western travelers... Not only they wrote about plague, that they also wrote about harem and sugarized and exotized and added and added and added. And the reason that the millions of people are di died in is Asia. not because they were fatalistic, or maybe yeah. we don't know. But in the end, um, it is a subject for me that the fact the the fact that the same microbe is killing millions of people in Asia, in China and India, and it is not. It doesn't um, cause much harm in Europe is one of the starting points of my novel. Whether Asians, Orientals are fatalistic or not is beyond that. It's a subject by the side. And you ask yourself this, and this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to imagine a plague in an Ottoman land. Why are people, I argue to myself, should be behaving a bit differently Or at least I should write my novel to see that difference. That's why I'm writing my novel, and then then add to it uh, add to it ideas about death and also uh, the exaggerated Orientalism, fatalism. These are also the part the subject. My point here is that one of the focal points of discussion about plague is fatalism. Maybe we say something about that too. Mm -hmm. I, I, I need to turn to Nuket actually uh -huh. at this point because she uh, deconstructs the emergence of the idea or ideal of the fatalistic Turk through the travel narratives of the Europeans from the 16th uh, mm -hmm. century onwards. I mean, you don't necessarily stick to this uh, notion of fatalistic dark and we should be I don't also stick uh, but I that's not I don't jump and eat on, only that 
So that's <laughs> starting to get at this point. Okay. And, uh -huh. yeah. No, I mean, I think you have a point in, in the sense that, you know, this notion of fatalistic Turk or how the Ottoman Empire, you know, responded or did not respond to plague has some implications to understand global history of plague. So in that sense, I think this is something that we need to talk about. So what I saw in my own work, uh, studying the accounts of European visitors that came to the Ottoman Empire and have written about the, um, the experiences of... of you use uh, this term epidemiological orientalism in that particular instance. So could you elaborate on this as well? Sure. So epidemiological orientalism, this is a term I use to refer to the ways in which or the discourses um, produced by the European travelers writing about the Ottoman experiences of plague in particular. And this is, I think, really at the heart of the matters that we really mm -hmm. need to understand because this epidemiological Orientalism is not only something that informed the historical scholarship produced in Europe about the Ottoman Empire and that had lasting results into the 21st century. But at the same time, it was this body of knowledge that informed epidemiological thinking in the late 19th and early 20th century. And as uh, Orhan suggested, um, 1894, we have the beginning of the third pandemic with the plague of Hong Kong and Bombay, and then these spread to the rest of the world, making the modern uh, global plague that we know of today. And so in that sense, there is very close associations between the epidemi epidemiological Orientalism a body of knowledge that was drawn from Ottoman experience starting in the early modern period, and also its applications to Asian and South Asian contexts by European epidemiologists in that context. So I think I see some parallels there, how the Oriental, for example, could be conveniently applied as a category to Istanbul or to Hong Kong. In fact, when you write, when you look at the writings of those scholars, you see descriptions being very similar. But going back to the question of fatalism, as we mentioned earlier, as we discussed, there are a multiplicity of human responses to plague, and we can expect to find them at any given place, at any given time. What I found in my research is looking at the writings of these European travelers and visitors, visitors to the Ottoman Empire, even though you have these multiple voices or multiple responses to plague, it seems one behavior among these many starts to be the kind of representative behavior of Muslim societies, and that is to say the behavior of the fatalistic Turk. If we open this, this up, we can see how accounts talk about how Muslims did not flee plague because they did not understand plague was contagious, how they lacked rational thinking, how they under, how I, lacked the notion of contagion. Here. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a fact that they did not show the same reaction and did not run away. That doesn't mean they are irrational, but they're not afraid of death that much. To conclude from that, that they're irrational is perhaps Orientalism. I am critical of whenever the subject of plague and imposition of quarantine comes, the focus post-colonial reaction of only seeing Orientalist historians while there is an immense subject of what happened to us when there is 
plague. Or maybe I'll tell it more simply. When there is immense uh, repression of women, harems, this, that, the repression of women in Asian countries or Oriental countries is a big subject. But if you only tackle with Orientalist representations of harem in Western literature, then you miss the whole point. Mm -hmm. Then, yes, unfortunately, that's what we have. Because no one wrote about the other one, because that's another subject that personal writing, diary writing, uh, personal histories, uh, local histories are lacking. So how do we invent or think or imagine the past? Yes, it, I think it's easy to bypass Orientalist prejudices of fatalism. That's not my problem. If I want to write a book about Ottoman harem, what the Western travelers uh, exaggerated, I can see that. That's not a problem. But then, how do women in the harem imagine their lives? How do they lend a meaning to it? Then, when at we least lack, we have some. When especially we lack diaries of first-person yes. documents written by the concubines themselves, for example. Yes, if for we example, miss them, yes. then how are we going to reconstruct yes, exactly. the voices of? In plague, it's even more problematical because we need people at a house. Plague breaks family ties. This is what makes it it's so interesting because traditional Asian, whatever we call it, I don't want to use ideological concept, traditional societies are defined by the fact that family ties are so strong. You don't need government institutions. You don't need social security system that families protect about and the family is important and the family tie, your relation with your mother, sisters, brothers, this is so important. But when that comes that strongly, then you can see the humanity of the person, that the whole weight of history, traditional society is, dang, is destroyed, and a person runs by himself. And if you can imagine that by yourself and see how can that happen, even Daniel Defoe is writing that, ah, he says he's most scared that a wife is not a wife anymore, father is not a father anymore, brother is not a brother, and everyone is, that is the end of history and ideology, and that is in itself, leave aside all the prejudices. It's an extremely interesting subject for a writer. Mm -hmm. If I may just go very quickly about the question of quarantine, I would like to just open up this um, to thinking about why quarantine and public health efforts have been, have become almost um, like idealized in this on the scholar historical scholarship. I mean, when you look at them, I of course, many books have been written about a plague experience in European society in the early modern period, in the modern period, in different parts of the world, and you always see quarantine being, you know, idealized as a kind of positivity, epitome of the positivistic response of 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 you know the positivistic way of thinking of a scholarship that really comes from um, um, Eurocentric mm -hmm. narratives. Now, in that sense, I want to open up this thinking about quarantine, whether, I mean, this, you know, underlying these narratives, you have the sense that it is our modern obsession with quarantine as an effective measure against plague that really gives a value 
to these scholars talking about plague. You know, you want to see, of course, oh, there is quarantine in Europe. So this means they were more progressive, you know, more had scientific understanding and you don't have the same quarantine measures in the Ottoman Empire. It means there is no effective public health measure. I reject this this argument. And in fact, I think, you know, focusing too much on quarantine does not even give us a full understanding of how mm-hmm. effective the measures were. I want to say something about this. <laughs> yes, quarantine in starting from uh, at the end of 19th century, um, quarantine was not a method anymore because humanity, after all, Koch discovered microbes and in fight against microbes made quarantine unnecessary. But what do we understand by quarantine? Quarantine is not only isolation or keeping people from other thing. With quarantine today, our understanding is that various measures to pay to make people alive and keep and make the cont- uh, contagion or epidemic disappear. You may have a quarantine system in which the people are using shots, but quarantine used as a method of isolation is essential. I don't think there may be an Eastern or non-Western way of fighting plague. In the end, it's medicine, and there is only one way of fighting the plague. And there was a time that quarantine was unnecessary, and this was the time when cholera and plague was around, and humanity knew that they came from various microbes, but did not have the shots for those, did not invent the shots for these microbes. And they knew that you can even kiss a person with plague unless you don't get it in your blood, you can survive. So uh, for a while, for some 20 years, for some doctors, plague was not a panicky thing. They know what's happening. Unfortunately, they didn't have the shot. And in some other sicknesses, isolation or putting people in a different separate place so that they will not was unnecessary because they have learned that it's not because you're poor, it's not because you're oriental, it's not because this, it's because of microbes you have. But while on the other hand, some people, even if you tell them this, are not afraid or do not not care or do not want to learn. My point is that in the end, with quarantina, we should understand there were lots of quarantina riots. riots. No, uh, 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 lots of, especially the, it's known in history as cholera riots in Russia. Do in, we have examples in the Ottoman world for uh, cholera uh, uh, or uh, um, uh, no? Um, uh, that is also very interesting. There are uh, cholera riots in Russia, Poland, and I sometimes think that perhaps there was. Why were there uh, riots? Because the government officials were saying, "Don't go there. Don't eat this. Close mm-hmm. your shop. I'm burning your stuff." And uh, and these are authoritarian countries, and they were using government system to punish the people for getting sick. While Daniel Defoe says, why the government officials were so kind. In fact, quarantine worked in 1655 plague in London because some officers were really nice and kind, and that helped. If you go to subaltern writings, uh, mm-hmm. the fifth volume of subaltern studies is about the third plague pandemic, and most of the stuff written in that uh, there is about how colonial English mistreated Indians. Some Indians resisted the colonial British and did not pay attention to quarantine measures. For example, in my novel, 
I try to argue that this is not resistance, is in a way the suicide. But then it's when the rhetoric of anti-colonialism takes place, it comes to the limits of not even accepting medicine. Uh, while uh, uh, my take on this is that in the end, you have to see what's happening locally through local eyes. And it's very hard to do that, really. And that's what we are working on. Let me just, now that we are talking, I took this note. Shall I read this okay. or do please, I have time? Please, yeah. uh, we prepared for this such a long time. Of, of all the subjects we wanted to talk about, very little we talk. But when, when we planned a bit to talk about fatalism here. Before you do that, can I uh -huh. just add something on yes. how mm -hmm. relevant, you know, global cholera epidemics is uh, to the history of plague? I mean, I agree what you said that starting in 1830s, we have these massive cholera outbreak pandemics mm -hmm. spreading into the world. And this is something that really is influencing the ways in which plague was understood and also how it was studied, the plague, uh, the scientific knowledge about plague. And so when we have the 1894 third pandemic, these experiences are very relevant to each other. But as you suggested, of course, we cannot take plague knowledge and administrative policy and uh, that experience outside of its colonial context is something that I very much agree with. But it's also important to keep in mind the basic mechanisms about plague as an infectious disease was not known until late 19, early 20th century. And so, as you suggested, so the bacteriological agent, the pathogen, Yersinia pestis, as, as the, the bacterium that causes plague was not known until 1894. And also how rats and fleas were involved in that process. This was something that became accepted in, uh, in the scientific community in the early 20th century. So in the absence of that knowledge, seeking for past organization or understanding a measure that would align with our modern scientific thinking of plague is in a way anachronistic. So in that sense, I think, you know, I think we should be more open to looking at multiple ways of dealing with disease. And in, in, in that, we should perhaps bring religious belief or belief in magic and experimental medical treatments into that mix. So I wanted to emphasize that. So some historians are actually using this term healthscaping, referring to public health efforts, especially in the, in the pre-modern period, and trying to break the association between public health from its modern and Euro-American context. So perhaps if we adopt a term like healthscaping, we can understand this variety of ways in which human societies try to deal with disease in different contexts, especially in the pre-modern period. Okay, let's move to yeah, let's uh, the quotation that uh, Mr. Pamuk will read. It's a sweet quotation. Yeah. <laughs> and then we will open the floor for yes. discussion this and questions from the audience. From, you will smile at this. That's what I told. <laughs> this is coming from the writer of Robinson Crusoe. Two years later, he wrote a novel. If you ask me, it's not a novel. And based on his uncle's notebook. But he is such a good writer. Adds little things that it reads like a novel. Or it reads as if... I don't think he wrote this. I don't think what I'm going to read is written by Daniel Duffo's uncle, but it's written by him. This quote novel is not a novel. It is, oh, the other day I met a guy who told me that in North London this happened, that happened, and a hundred page passes. That guy, it is not a little novel at all, but somehow some uh, British academics made it a novel. Okay, now in this novel or a text, 
um, Daniel Defoe says he meets someone and, he, and refers to that person as he. Then he proceeded to tell me of the mischievous consequences which attended the presumption of dead Turks and Mohammedans in Asia and in other places where he had been, this person who told this to Daniel Defoe, and how presuming upon their professed predestinating notions of every man's end being predetermined and unalterably before and decreed they would go unconcerned. So these people, Turks, were believed that every man's being is predetermined and unalterable. So why care? Decreed they would go unconcerned into infected places and converse with the infected persons. That is, according to Daniel Defoe, what the Turks did. And you can call this fatalistic, a bit exaggeration, or relatively, there is truth in this. But it's also very sweet to read mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. And Nuket, you also I actually uh, have the that, same right? passage in, <laughs> in my book, book yeah. but I problematize and I put it in context, you know, on the basis of the succession of uh, accounts coming to Europe at that time, because when Defoe is writing in early uh, 20th century, as you pointed out, he, there is the major threat of plague of Marseille, and they are activating some of the older beliefs about the Turks being as the, the origin of, of plague. In the question and answer session, Varlik spoke about when states started keeping track of plague deaths and what that meant. You have accounts during the Black Death in the 14, mid-14th century coming from the Mamluks in Cairo. I mean, as far as I remember, that is the beginning of the first systematic record keeping. But again, of course, when you look at European accounts, there is this impression that, you know, it's all stars in Europe, which is, you know, obviously not accurate. So it is something that we find in, in many different places. The earliest evidence I found in the Ottoman, Ottoman archives of counting the death tolls and using this as an epidemiological kind of to develop an understanding of, of the course of the outbreak is something that starts in the late 15th century. But maybe there were earlier accounts and I haven't come across. The earliest I've seen is during the time of Bayezid II. Pamuk continued to address the challenge of finding sources that offer insight on individual experiences of the plague. Uh, um, where do you look at that is to see the people's private reactions? Zero. I don't look at it. I, I need very little. There are some poems. There are things that the scholars discover. There are things that there are written on the tombs. Mezar Tashler. It's, it's a very limited subject. Partly because no one, oh, I have plague. I'm going to die in two days. Why don't I keep a diary? Uh, no one did it. He also touched on the difficulties of writing about the past more generally. But don't forget that they don't have phones, they don't have telephones, they don't have, uh, once there is plague, everything is cut off. You don't get a letter, can I come there? You know, <laughs> well, the hard thing about writing a, a historical novel is that we may project our problems of today uh, to the past. And he described how he chose what time period to set his novels in, with the topics he wanted to write about being a deciding factor. In fact, I change centuries uh, before I begin to write a novel while I may be thinking about that novel for quite a long time. This happened first in My Name is Red. I started writing, the title was not even My Name is Red, a novel about contemporary Turkish 20th century painter. I wanted to write a novel about a Turkish painter who was 
almost my age. But after working on it for a while, I decided that this will not work because the subject will be about authenticity because in 20th century Turkish painting is unfortunately all about influence and imitation and all the painters are has what Harold Bloom calls anxiety of influence even worse something even worse than that I didn't want to go into that direction so I wanted to again write a book about painters essentially the sentiment was based on how my hand when I, I when I wanted to be a painter till the age of 22 my hand was doing the painting and my mind my intellect my was coming later I was surprised so I wanted to write about this feeling in in the end, there is something like that in the book, maybe some five pages, but the book is 500 pages. In the end, I realized that in order to avoid the subject of authenticity or imitating the Western painter Picasso or Matisse or whoever, I needed to go for 400 years back. And in fact, that's what I did while the basic motivation to write that novel, which is I wanted to be a painter, but in the end, I end up being a writer. This, here. I also thought about this novel 30 years ago. In fact, in my silent house, referred to it. The character there is picking up some material for that novel. But after 30 years of thinking, not I'm not thinking all the time, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, in 30 years, I changed, slowly read in that. And this third pandemic began to get interesting. More important that problems of imposition, imposition of quarantine is, uh, get more interesting and sexy in the last hundred years. So I decided. And I also believe in, if I write a novel in 16th century, it is essentially doomed to be more fairy tale like And if I write a novel, what Yahya Kemal called Sujaktari, a history that he had the concept of Sujaktari, a history that has the power to influence us. But the history of 13th century black death or 10th century does not may not have a consequential we cannot find the traces of that influence and because of that I carried it and especially made it a third pandemic story but yes in both cases I thought of writing a novel that takes place in in one case modern times and end up writing a 16th century story or a 16th century story I thought and end up writing a early 20th or end of 19th century novel. Meanwhile, Varlik spoke about time period too by describing how in the early modern period she saw minimal differences between Ottoman plague policies and those of other states at the time. In the Ottoman, or in the Ottoman accounts, it is not possible to see um, accusations of certain groups bringing the plague. For instance, in the European case, you have all these Jewish pogroms, for example, as you know being accused of bringing a plague. In in the Ottoman example, I don't see any mass hysteria of accusing and persecuting a, a group of people for uh, accusations for for plague. That's one difference I found. But otherwise. I found nothing but parallels with other contemporary societies. Pamuk offered some parting words in response to one question. Then don't forget that it's all fictional. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Special thanks to Nuket Varlik, Orhan Pamuk, and Tun Shen. The conversation was organized by Tun Shen 
and the Sakup Sabanja Center for Turkish Studies at Columbia. The center also sponsored the event, along with support from the Columbia University School of the Arts, the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, and the Columbia Department of History. You can find more information about Nukat Varlik and Orhan Pamuk on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll also find a bibliography of relevant works, as well as links to the music that you hear on this episode, which comes from the artist Zetrigueros. Please also join us on Facebook, where our community of listeners is over 30,000 strong. Oh, one more thing. Special thank you to the audience at Columbia University, because now we have an applause track. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care. <laughs>